Good afternoon, folks. Salem Prez. It's good to be with you all. I'm not Ben Milner. Um, I'm John Bourgeois. I'm the RUF campus minister at Wake Forest. And um, if you are visiting uh, Salem for the first time, I'm here uh, just for a couple of weeks preaching because the, the head pastor, Ben Milner, is on sabbatical. Um, so filling in. And what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks is reading the book of Jonah together. The college was a bit of a roller coaster for me. Lots of up and downs. Uh, my life looked a lot like Jonah's. There was uh, running from God, being called back to him, trying again, failing again, running again and again and again. And all through college, I, I wrestled with this question, what am I supposed to be as a Christian? What are Christians for? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? What are Christians for? Um, I wrestled with this question, what's next? Like, what am I to do now that I've received mercy from God? Why doesn't God just whisk me off to heaven once I believe in him? What's next? What am I supposed to be doing? Um, maybe you've asked these questions. If you're not a Christian and you're here, you're listening in, is this a question worth you asking, you worth asking as well? Uh, what, are, what are Christians for? Um, what, what are Christians for? And my hope is that as we consider the story of Jonah together, we might start to get an answer for that question. So just to orient you to the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet of God in the 8th century B.C. In the beginning of the book, God speaks to Jonah in an audible voice and says, Go preach to Nineveh. Preach my gospel to Nineveh. Tell them to repent and believe. And Jonah runs. Right? He resists God's commands. He, he resents his presence. And he gets on a ship and heads in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh, um, goes to Tarshish. And while he's on this ship, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, God throws a storm upon him. And uh, he volunteers to get thrown off the boat. He's thrown into the sea. And then there, at the end of his rope, at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, he hits rock bottom. And he cries out. And it's there, when he can't perform, and he can't run, and he can't achieve, that he gets God's grace. It's there at the bottom of the sea that he gets God's grace. Because God's office is at the end of our rope. And Jonah's confession at the bottom is that salvation is of the Lord. And once Jonah gets it, once he understands God's grace deep in his bones, the Lord speaks to the fish and he vomits Jonah up on dry ground. And that brings us to what we have tonight in chapter 3. And our question tonight, what are Christians for? There's lots of ways to answer that question, but tonight from Jonah, I want us to see this. I want us to see that Christians exist to participate in God's compassion for the world by going, by pushing back the darkness, and by participating in his work of salvation. Christians exist to participate in God's compassion for the world by going, by pushing back the darkness, and by participating in his work of salvation. So first, going. So chapter 3 begins just like chapter 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah... The Lord has a message for Jonah to proclaim to Nineveh, but this time Jonah obeys. And then the action just starts moving, all these action verbs. He arise, go, call out. He arose, went, began to go, called out. And the first thing Jonah does when he hears from the Lord is he goes. God calls him and he goes. And we're told he goes to Nineveh, which we're told is a great city. It would take three days to walk around. And he goes one day into the city, right into the heart of it. I want you to imagine with me what that would be like for Jonah. He's a foreigner, he's a Jew an enemy of Assyria, and he goes straight into the Assyrian capital. He doesn't stand at the edge, but he walks the streets, preaching this message all the way into the center. He goes where he's sent. And this is what God's people do. They go where they are sent. We see this all over the Bible. This is the story of God's people. God's sending his people out. They are always on the move, always journeying together. 
We see this most clearly where we see all beautiful things. We see it in Jesus. That Jesus, who for all eternity dwelt in perfect love with the Father and the Spirit, he was sent. He was sent into our world. Jesus was sent into the womb of Mary to be born into our world. Sent in his incarnation into our lives. Why? Because God, in response to our sin, did not stand off at a distance. But he sent his son into the mess of this world. Born into this world to die the death we deserve. To be raised to newness of life. And in the church, our baptism is for mission. God the Father baptizes us in Christ by the power of the Spirit to send us on mission. Your baptism into Christ is for mission. It's to go. And that's what God is doing with Jonah. He's sending him into the center of Nineveh bearing God's message. Now there are probably parts of Nineveh that were scary. Um, parts that were intimidating during the day, scary at night. Parts that Jonah would rather avoid due to their wealth or their intellect or their power. Or maybe due to their poverty or their filth or their danger. But Jonah went into the city bearing God's message. And he sends you. He sends you out into the lives of your neighbors. And here's the thing. If you're a Christian, God has already sent you. This is part of your identity. You are a sent one. You don't wait to be sent. You already are sent. You're here. God has sent you into this city, into your families, into your vocations, into your relationships, into your responsibilities. And uh, for those of you who graduate tomorrow, God is sending you out wherever you are going. But often, instead of going, we sit on the beach. Right? We refuse to enter into God's compassion for our neighbors. We avoid places. Right? We avoid places. We avoid people. Particular people. We avoid particular types of people. And more often than not, more, often than not, we're, we're more comfortable sitting on the, the beach by the Mediterranean Sea and not going. Another way of saying this, uh, there's a pastor in California named Bob Crossland who says that one of the values of his church is that they have no hot tubs. This is what he says. He says, hot tub is one of the best analogies for how Silicon Valley views community and friendship. Time is so limited and precious that once you find something that is working socially, you hold on for dear life and you don't mess with it. There's no concept of making room for others or spreading the joy. Therefore, social connections and friendships become highly self-centered, mercenary, and stunted over time. He says there's an incredible poverty of community here. So this church, they say to each other over and over again, there are no hot tubs in our church. Because they live in a place that is starving for real connection, starving for real friendship. And because they're convinced that Christians are sent people. So the question for you, where are you not making room for others? Where are you not spreading joy? Where are your friendships self-centered? Where in your life are your relationships about you and not about Jesus? Where in your life are you sitting on that beach and not going? Where is God calling you into someone else's life, into someone else's space, instead of the hot tub of Christian comfort you've built for yourself and for your friends? Christians exist to participate in the compassion of God by going. By going and by pushing back the darkness. When, when Jonah goes to Nineveh, the Lord tells him to call out against it because the city is evil. We see this in the first chapter, verse 2, that the evil of Nineveh has come up before the Lord. And Nineveh, Nineveh was known for their evil, was known for their wickedness. They're actually known for cutting off the noses of their enemies and literally skinning them alive. They were a wicked, evil people. And so Jonah is sent to them to call out against their evil, against their sin. And this is the story of the Bible, that God hates sin and he calls out against it. 
If you spend any time in its pages, you will find yourself on the hook for the things that you love that aren't God, for the things that you think about that don't please him, and for the things that you do that disobey his law of love. Now, why, why does God care so much about sin? Because we're told that, that sin is cosmic treason. It's a proclamation to God and to the world and to ourselves and to our neighbors, not thy will be done, but my will be done. When in thought and word and deed, we say along with the whole of humanity, not thy will be done, God, but my will be done. And sin destroys everything beautiful that God has created. Sin is a direct attack on God and his good purposes for the world. And like Jonah, the call of the church is to call out against sin, to name it and to call out against it wherever we see it. You know, I know this is hard for us to hear. Truth is contested um, in our world, right? To make any sort of claim on truth, any fixed definition of good or evil, it's so difficult. We're scared of being named a bigot or hateful, um, especially when we see this abused in power plays or as, see it abused as power plays. And to have your definitions of good and evil rooted in the Bible is even more difficult because there are lots and lots of things in our culture, in every culture, uh, lots of things that in every culture that the culture calls good that God calls sin. And to call out against sin will cost you. And I want you to hear this. I know how difficult this is. That when you are tempted to not call sin, sin, when you're tempted to excuse and ignore the darkness in the world around you, God invites you. He invites us to look at Jesus. To look at him. Jesus, who whose entire life was calling out sin. Jesus refused to let sin be excused or ignored because the entire mission was the destruction, the dismantling, the, eradic- the eradication of sin and its effects. And we see this most clearly in the crucifixion. Jesus' death was the death of sin. Death itself was swallowed up in his death. Jesus leaned into sin, pushed into it to the point where he broke it. If you belong to Jesus, sin and death will not win. Jesus has defeated sin. His entire mission was to walk into the sin and death of this world and to take it into himself, as well as the wrath it deserved from his Father, so that it might be destroyed in him. So how are we to live in light of this? Well, Jonah shows us two ways that we're to participate in this. First, the message that we proclaim, and second, the story that we inhabit. So first, the message we proclaim you notice, Jonah's sermon here is only five words. In Hebrew, it's just five words. Yet 40 days Nineveh overthrown. Simple sermon. Not a very good sermon. Um, Simple sermon. But imagine what his presence in that city did. He had a a simple sermon, but he embodied a life-changing story. Here's a man who ran from God. Got on a boat, sailing away. God found him, sent a storm on him, threw him in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. There, at the end of his rope, he called out to God, and God scooped him up in a fish, and then spit him out on land, and called him again, and sent him into the city. This is a man who has known the depths of his sin, the depths of his rebellion, the depths of his his apathy, his running from God, his unwillingness to, to listen, and also knows the depths of God's grace. That God did not let him run, but came after him in love, pursued him to the point of rescuing him, and vomited him out on the shore. So this is the man who goes into the city to proclaim this message. I remember in college, um, knowing that I was supposed to tell people about Jesus as a Christian. And I remember trying to convince people that they needed Jesus. 
Uh, I have this really embarrassing memory of standing on my fraternity porch with a Bible in my hand, like trying to convince people. And my fraternity brother would be like, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And I was um, trying to convince people they needed Jesus, but was completely unwilling to share with them why I needed Jesus. Have you experienced this? I mean, either giving this or receiving it. Have someone ever tried to convince you that you need Jesus without first sharing their need? Or have you ever tried to convince someone else that they need Jesus without you first, without you first sharing your need? See, our, neighbor, our neighbors see right through this, right? They perceive this as inauthentic and rude and judgmental, and they're right. I mean, look at Jonah. Look at the story he embodied. His testimony was all about how he needed God's grace. Nothing on his own merit. God saved him when he was at the depths of the ocean. Not about him, about God and his grace. Wes Simmons, who's a former RUF campus minister, puts it this way. He says, what if evangelism really is more about sharing than convincing? More about being vulnerable with our brokenness than being so quick to point it out in others. When you are willing in humility to first share with someone about your brokenness, your heart idols, and your own need for Jesus... They are much more likely to be drawn into a conversation than if you should just start the conversation by asking them why they should be allowed into heaven one day. We want to give people space to put their guard down for a few minutes, not provoke them to put it up. We want to give them the space to hear about Jesus. And in order to proclaim the message of God's grace, God first made Jonah the recipient of that grace. He was qualified to preach God's compassion only after he had first received God's compassion. So we're called to push back the darkness through the message we proclaim and through the story that we inhabit. God isn't calling you to walk around Winston-Salem with a sign around your neck yelling, 40 days and Winston-Salem shall be overthrown. But he is calling you to join him in pushing back the darkness and calling out sin and fighting against it. He's calling you to participate in the work he is doing in the world. God is the one pushing back the darkness. So what does it mean to be a Christian who pushes back the darkness? It means for our, live, our lives together, um, sorry, it means for us to live lives together that tell the story of the work that God has done in Jesus. So it's our shared life together. And for most of you, your ministry is going to be something other or is something other than doing full-time Christian ministry work. So it's your life together, the way that you love one another, and it's your vocations. So for those of you who are medical professionals, your work is to participate in the healing of Christ. The great, the great physician. For those of you who are parents and caregivers, your work is to participate in the love and nurture of Christ as you care for children. For those of you who are lawyers and bankers and business people, your work is to participate in bringing Christ's mercy and justice into a world, into a world of injustice, corruption, and greed. Artists and musicians, your work is to participate in the creativity of Christ. Writing, painting, creating beauty that points the world to the matchless beauty of God. Students, your work is to participate in the mind of Christ. Growing up into his wisdom and compassion. And I know I missed many of you in that list, but I hope you see my point. All of life is participation. Through Christ, in the power of his Holy Spirit, you get to participate in God's compassion to the world. Hear me on this. Christ is your life, and his call to you is to participate with him in the work that he is doing to push back the darkness of sin in this world. Yes, it does involve raising your voice to speak out against sin, but it's so much more than that. So what are Christians for? 
Well, it's response to Christ's incarnation going into places that need the compassion of God. And in response to Christ's crucifixion, push, pushing back the darkness by word and deed. And finally, in response to his resurrection, it's participating in his work of salvation. Look at our story. What, what happens in response to Jonah's message? Everyone repents. The king, the people, even the cows. Everyone puts on sackcloth, covers their head in ashes, and repents. This pagan nation who loves evil hears the word of the Lord and repents. And God relents. God saves them. He delivers them from darkness. He, he rescues them from certain death. And what we see here is that Jonah gets to be a participant in God's salvation of the Ninevites. There's something amazing I want you to see in these verses. Um, Greg Thompson, who's another pastor, helped me to see this. And this is what he says. He says that verse 4 includes the key to the book. Um, he calls it the literary skeleton key. And look at, look at verse 4 with me if you have that out. How, how does Jonah participate in God's salvation of the Ninevites? Well, one half of one verse in this whole book tells us what Jonah did. Verse 4, it says, He called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So we're going to have to do a little bit of work to unpack this. But what is the central conflict in Jonah? Is it between God and, is it between God and Nineveh? Is it between Jonah and Nineveh? No, the central conflict of this book is between God and Jonah. And everything else is peripheral. Nineveh is just a character in the story. God wants to save Nineveh. Jonah doesn't. And Jonah's mad about that. And even though Jonah is now going to Nineveh, the conflict between God and Jonah hasn't been resolved. And so Jonah, and by extension Israel, is willing to go to Nineveh, but he's going to protest sin. Right? He is not going to pursue salvation. Jonah going to push back the darkness of Nineveh to protest and call out against its sin. Right? He is hot. He's ready to go. He is not thinking about working for their salvation. That's the conflict in Jonah. The central claim of this book is that God doesn't care what Jonah wants. God wants salvation. And his compassion will not be thwarted by his people. His compassion will overflow, and it will remove sin, and it will bring salvation. So how do we know that God wants salvation and not the destruction of Nineveh? Well, there's two ways that we see this in this, in this verse. First, it's this language of calling out. Calling out. This is judgment language. It's used twice in this book for judgment. Chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 2. God calls out for judgment. But it shows up three other times in this book. Chapter 1, verse 6, the sailors ask Jonah to call out to God that they might be saved. Chapter 1, verse 14, the sailors themselves call out to God that they, he might forgive their sins. And then chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah calls out to God from inside the fish. So there's five uses of this phrase, call out, in this book. Two about judgment and three about salvation. Three about salvation. So what's going on here? The author has been messing with us the whole time and we didn't know it. The author is showing us that while Jonah thinks that he is going to call out judgment, God intends to use him to call out salvation. It happens twice with the sailors and once with himself. So that's the first way we see it. And the second way is this word overthrown. Two ways I want us to see this. First is the image of being overthrown. What does it mean to be overthrown? It means to be thrown over. Anyone know who got thrown over? Jonah. Jonah got thrown over the side of the ship. Jonah has actually been thrown over. And his being overthrown wasn't for his judgment, right? It was for his salvation. The language of overthrown in Jonah, even though it feels like judgment, is actually about salvation. 
Jonah knew this in his own life. It's what saved him. So Nineveh will be overthrown and it will save them. So first, the image of being overthrown and throw over. And second, it's this actual worth. And in most English translations, they correctly translate it as overthrown. And the reason that translators do that is because they know that it refers back to the ship image. Now, some translations say overturned. And the reason is because the word means overturned, which means turned over, and it also can mean turned around. So it could mean 40 days in Nineveh will be turned around. Now, so far in this book, there is one person who's been turned around. Who was it? It was Jonah. He was going west to Tarshish, and now he's going east to Nineveh. And was his turning around for his judgment or for his salvation? It's for his salvation. So what you see here is just as Jonah was overturned, his overturning was for his salvation. And, just, and so shall Nineveh be overturned. They're going to be overturned, but not in the way that Jonah thinks. And the author is preparing us for what will happen in chapter 4. That when you think that God is going to use Jonah to throw Nineveh into the sea of God's judgment, God is actually going to use Jonah to throw Nineveh into the waves of God's compassion. That's what's happening. And here's why this is so great. God's mission in the world is to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. To bring his peace and joy and fullness and flourishing and goodness and justice to every corner of his creation. And y'all, we cannot stop it. And the opportunity is yours to participate. You cannot stop God's compassion. You can't screw it up. You cannot sabotage the kingdom of God. Some of you are so worried about doing everything perfectly. Guess what? You are going to mess stuff up. You're going to mess a lot of stuff up. But you cannot sabotage God, and you cannot sabotage his salvation. Some of you feel incredible amounts of shame. You think of yourself as a disappointment. You're, con- you're convinced you've already ruined everything. You think it's up to you to get everything in order so you don't ruin your future, so you make your parents proud, so you don't disappoint your friends, so you don't squander your potential. Hear me on this. God is not disappointed in you. He doesn't see you as a screw-up. I mean, of course, he's disappointed in stuff that you've done, but that's because he loves you. Christ is your life, and he forgives you, and he is with you. Look at Jonah. God had great plans for Jonah, and he wouldn't let Jonah sabotage his plans. Jonah ran away, and God went and got him. Jonah hid, and God pulled him out. Jonah didn't believe in God's compassion, and God threw him to the bottom of the sea and pulled him up again so that he would know that God's salvation is real and that his compassion isn't just an idea and that he is the God of all grace. Jonah even preached a bad sermon of condemnation to Nineveh, and God used it to bring salvation to the entire city. And Jonah points us to Jesus. Jesus never ran away from where he was sent. He runs to you into the wreckage and chaos of your own life, into your sadness, into your disappointments and your failures, right? even into your successes and achievements, Jesus runs to you. Jesus is the embodiment of God's compassion. God wanted you to have no doubt about his compassion, so he gave you the most precious thing he had. He gave you his only begotten son, and he gave him up. He gave him up to death on the cross because he loves you so much. So what are Christians for? This to participate in God's compassion as his salvation covers the earth. Listen to how 1 Peter 2 puts it. He writes to the church, You have been called out, called out of the darkness into God's marvelous light, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the story of Jonah, and we thank you that you are a God who comes to us, that does not run from us, but comes to us and gives us real work to do, to participate in the work that you are doing. We thank you that we cannot sabotage 